space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission? To observe Trek from outside existence, to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of the universe. To seek out every second and contemplate every eon. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. Hello and welcome to Temporal Trek, the podcast that will show Trek throughout existence in chronological order. I'm your host, Dan Hitch. Welcome back, second episode. Uh, Hopefully you've listened to the episode before, but it doesn't really matter at the moment because we are currently outside of time. We're outside of existence. So uh, I'm going to break down the show into different seasons based on different eras. Uh, This era uh, is going to be season zero. So you can watch season zero in any order. I've purely decided to uh, record it in order of air date, um, starting from the 1960s all the way through, just as a way of mixing it up a bit more uh, for my own enjoyment. Little did I know that that would have led me to uh, the Magics of Megas 2 first. But from what is seen as probably the worst iteration of Trek in the animated series, we're going to, I think, one of the best, one of the most revered iterations. We are moving on to the next generation. Now, this is the Trek that got me into Trek. Uh, This is the one I grew up on. This is the one that got me into uh, loving this whole universe. Uh, And I think um, it's one of my favourite episodes from this season and it's from season one of star trek the next generation where no one has gone before you know it's not much competition i have to admit season one is very hard to watch it already seemed dated when it first came out let alone uh looking at it 30 plus years after the event but this is one of my favorites this is an episode that deals with time travel sort of uh, and I'll go into more detail on that in a moment. But this is a, a, an episode that deals with existence, where we are, how do we get there, what might the future of humanity hold, and also talks about some of our characters and gives them a bit more depth. Specifically, uh, the, the character that I loved when I was a child. Uh, not as beloved throughout the uh, fandom, I don't think, but uh, he's the reason I really got into it, and it's Wesley Crusher. So, starting off, with all these episodes, I try and give a basic synopsis. The Enterprise-D takes on an engine specialist and a mysterious assistant uh, to try and improve the efficiency of the engines. Through those improvements, which are seen as nonsense by the rest of the crew, they somehow not only get to another galaxy, but somewhere beyond. Now, it is mentioned in the episode that uh, the Traveller states that they are million, a million billion light years away from their original position. But he also says, I think that's how you would see it from your perspective. So that's why I'm not arguing that this is a time adjacent story. This is outside existence, outside time. Um, so the part of the episode we're actually going to start with starts at timestamp 19 minutes and 32 seconds. So for that person out there who is creating this supercut, based on the Netflix UK watching, it is 19 minutes, 32 seconds when the Enterprise moves from what I perceive as our space, time and existence to somewhere else. Now, the reason I do that is because the very first thing that's stated when we're in this part of whatever existence outside time is actually said by Data. Uh, And he said that the instruments never said that they never went faster than warp 1.5. So they didn't move anywhere. They shifted somewhere. Um, That's how I took it to mean that they were they were moving using the warp engines, but they weren't necessarily going in a direction or perhaps a time. They were moving into something else. Data then says where none have gone before. Boom! Uh, that's, you know, they might as well just roll the end credits uh, at that point. He said it. He said the catchphrase from Star Trek, where none have gone before. Um, uh, it's almost said with a little wry smile as well from Brent Spiner, so I wonder if uh, he was trying his best to, to say it without uh, without fluffing the line. At this point, Picard gives a captain's log entry uh, and states that they're in the universe. So, yes, come at me with feedback on this episode and try and argue the case that it isn't outside existence. Uh, if 
you come up with me with a really good uh, reason and rationale, what will happen is this will remain outside the universe as an episode in season zero, but when it comes to watching it uh, in the TNG run, obviously that will be part there. And then we can then discuss perhaps it be at the end of the universe as well, because there are certain things said throughout this episode or this chunk of the episode that could be anywhere. Um, their chronometers, their, their instruments somehow are able to read that they are a billion light years away. How exactly they do that, I'm not entirely sure, especially if they only went warp 1.5 faster. Instantly, we're shown that this realm or this area that they live in um, is a dangerous one because uh, within a matter of seconds, Worf is the first one to really experience what this reality brings. And it's got some weird flavours that are almost the same as last week's episode. Uh, the Magics of Magus 2 was all about magic and uh, willing things into existence using some sort of belief technology. Uh, and in this universe, uh, Worf is some, for some reason thinking about his pet Targ from when he was a child um, back home. Now, uh, it's kind of difficult to tell whether he uh, is thinking of the pet Targ he had uh, when he was a boy growing up on Kitima before the Romulans attack, and this is was his pet dog, or is he talking about his home on Earth with the Rajenkos? Uh, if so, uh, I think the Rajenkos are probably the most understanding parents in Star Trek, because <laughs> uh, this thing is big. This is a massive warthog-looking thing with spines and spikes and... Um, uh, what looks to be the mother of all uh, cat litter trays being needed for this thing. It's it's huge. <laughs> the fact that he's got this as a pet, um, I'm guessing because the, the conversation with Data and Picard was that they moved so far away from home, his thoughts then turned to home and then that turned to the Targ. Tasha says something which is very odd. Looking at this Targ, this is massive. This is a massive beast. And he uh, describes it as his pet. And then Tasha instantly goes into um, talking about it as a kitty cat. Um, even though I would think the most obvious analogy would be something more like a dog or something much larger. Um, my first thoughts would not be cat. But because of that, she then thinks of the ginger tabby cat that she had back onto Kana 4 where she grew up. And we get a very disturbing scene a flashback scene to tasha um, trying to evade the rape gangs that she's mentioned before in other episodes but obviously as far as this podcast is concerned that hasn't happened yet the fact that she's evading these gangs um makes me question like how did i get away watching this when i was a kid they're talking about something that is a very scary concept the idea that you were being chased in your home uh, where you live. Um, again, I've brought this uh, podcast into being to sort of try and defend um, Discovery. There's that little part of my brain that is trying to defend um, Discovery uh, against some of the things that are thrown at it. One of the things that I've heard, and one of the problems I do share, is that Discovery isn't a part of Trek that I could easily share with my children. There are elements in it. Um, I'm not too bothered about the swearing, but the violence aspect is something that I worry about and what am I exposing my children to. But I would have absolutely no problem exposing my children to TNG. Uh, so it seems like a double standard there. It's a set precedent that we're talking about rape gangs. Uh, that's pretty extreme. Um, we may not see the acts going on, but it's still mentioned. Um, you know, it would invite a very uncomfortable conversation with my sons, that's for sure. But that's very momentary um, blip in this episode that we're discussing because Geordie comes along and just breaks her out of it um, and then they, they try and calm her down. Another genuinely scary moment, um, you know, not the same league of scariness, but still scary all the less. Uh, we then go to Picard, who's heading down to engineering to try and figure out what happened. He's inside a turbo lift without even thinking walks out into a starfield at warp. Uh, no doubt his mind, his thoughts were going towards the idea of exploration. They're in this area that has never been seen before. So the idea that they're traveling very fast would probably be foremost in his mind. Uh, so it kind of makes sense, again, as a delusion that's happening at that time. Uh, but the the tension, the the distress that the crew must be coming up to is already building. We've had 
uh, a, a nice image of a targ from home pets lovely then obviously the wild extreme up to uh, tasha yar the the scariness of what she grew up with um and then a whole other horror uh, aspect with picard and this idea that uh, you could be just flung into the void of space uh, as a scary concept. It's also here at this point that because Cap uh, Captain Picard is walking down to engineering, we're getting these funny asides with uh, some of lower deck crew members that don't have any lines, but they're going through um, some really random adventures. There's the crewman who is uh, practicing to be a violinist with some of um, the world's greatest violinists from history, you know, with sort of the Vivaldis and uh, and so on. Uh, he's with this classical orchestra playing away, uh, presumably whilst he's having his lunch in the mess deck. There's another crew member who's having a ballet dance in a in a cargo bay, and these were actually genuinely funny. Um, I thought these were at least in the same level, if not better, uh, than say the show The Orville. Uh, which is coming on, um, uh, coming on to the end of its second season as we're recording this episode. Um, uh, full honesty, uh, not huge fan of Orville. Um, I've watched it. I enjoy it as a piece of TV. I can see the the wonderful love letter that it is for Star Trek, but it hasn't really lived up to what I feel it should have been, which is a a comedy Star Trek. It is trying to be Star Trek, not the other way around. And I think I would have enjoyed. Uh, funny scenes like this um, these were just comedy moments sort of um, uh, no dialogue just funny odd what would be happening to the rest of the crew whilst they're going through this kind of adventure and it also brought up this idea that uh, again at the time of this recording they are already announcing uh, an animated series written by um, and directed I believe from the writer of the Rick and Morty series set on some starship it's going to be an animated series, uh, some uh, unknown starship in the, the hind quarter of space, the, the least important starship having the wacky adventures, and it's just going to be sort of off the wall. And these scenes uh, just made me think of that, like how good it could be. Just very odd, very uh, completely out of character for the show uh, to show these um, other stories going on. But completely welcome. I love seeing the lower decks and how things affect the rest of the crew. There's another um, two crew members who run past Picard and say, Picard, you know, the, the, please help us, Captain. There's something chasing us. We never see what's actually chasing them. Um, but he just walks off and just completely blasé about the whole thing. There's so many different things um, that could be going on on the ship. I'm so glad that they showed us what was going on. It's at this point that the episode then shifts into a really weird, um, ethereal uh, aspect to the show. Um, the, again, the main reason why I put it outside time. Uh, we see Mama Picard. Um, it's, it's the first instance where we get to see a family member for Picard. Uh, this sweet old lady sitting in front of uh, a French tea dining set she says something very interesting. Do you perceive this as uh, the end of the universe or the beginning? So because of that line, that's why this clip, this part of um, this episode will not only be reviewed in season zero, but it will be reviewed post Big Bang as well. So when we do our Big Bang episode with Voyager, the, the moment after, I will then be re-reviewing this part of the episode. Now, it may seem quite redundant. It's only a couple of episodes down the line. Um, I've only got a few more to go for season zero. But I've set this uh, this task in motion. The rules of this podcast are it has to be a scene set in a time. Um, it can't be a simulation. It can't be one of Q's tricks. Um, it can't be uh, a illusion in some way. It can't be a holodeck recreation. But if it is set in a time... If a character expressly says that this could be this time, then I have to watch that segment. Whilst this scene is playing out, Picard is sort of thrown off um, uh, and wondering what is going on. And there's this really eerie music, the synth music that's playing in the background. Now, normally that's quite jarring uh, from what I remember of season one, that the synth just is it, ratched up so much. But this one is just very subtle. It's, it's just a few notes and it reminds me of watching the Dune film 
um, which also is a Patrick Stewart uh, film. Um, but it was so odd and eerie and it sets a very weird tone um, for that whole scene. And Picard says something very odd that we believe in the outer rim. Uh, after she mentions beginning and end of the universe, we believe in the anti, uh, the outer rim. Now, I tried to track down what exactly this theory was. Was it something that was in popular culture? Was it something that uh, has been in scientific literature uh, for ages and I've just never heard of it? Um, I'm not entirely sure what they're talking about. Um, so again, if you are a scientist, if you know what he's talking about, if you uh, could enlighten me and please give me feedback and then I will um, put that in my feedback session section for future episodes. But we believe in the outer rooms, very odd statement to say, and then it's just dropped. There's no uh, payoff to that at all. Riker suddenly shows up, uh, breaks Picard's concentration, who's talking to his mother, um, and uh, he shouts at Riker. And again, it... it it's jarring. The same way that last episode when Kirk was saying his uh, his lines, which seemed like they were better fit for Picard's mouth, um, you've got Picard suddenly um, just shouting at Riker, just uh, one minute, number one. Um, and it, it, it seems out of character for what I remember Picard being and from what I know from all the, the rewatches of other episodes. Uh, and it just reinforces that jarring aspect of what season one and then again season two um, is still seen as from TNG. Picard gets to the engineering room. He raises red alert. Um, he realizes that's the quickest way of getting attention, uh, which is a smart, smart thing to do. You know, the captain could put out an announcement over the Tannoy system and uh, let everyone know to, uh, to to try and center their thoughts, but. The best way to do that with a well-trained crew would be to raise red alert, get to your battle stations, focus on your duty. It's then that we establish that we are not in the physical universe. Again, this is my other part of evidence to show that this is outside time. This is not space, this is not time, this is not space-time. Uh, this is a thought universe. Um, we've given a, a brief second with Kaczynski, who is the main engineer who comes on board with the Traveller, his assistant. Um, uh, who seems very humbled by uh, the fact that uh, his everyone knows that he wasn't the one to improve the engines and that it was all the traveller's work. Uh, Picard, again, is very, very hostile. Um, he loves to twist that knife. Kaczynski realises that he is completely and utterly useless. And rather than Picard giving him the, the, the sort of rational... Um, Picard that we are so used to from future episodes. Picard just digs that knife in deeper and says, yes, yeah, yeah you should be so humbled. Um, it's Wesley. So, uh, Wesley time. <laughs> like I say, I love Wesley Crusher. Um, I was a boy getting into Star Trek. I see this other boy around my own age who's not only in Star Trek but is learning to fly the ship. That's fantastic for me. Um, that's what got me into Star Trek and uh, I will fight anyone who, who has something wrong to say about Wesley. But uh, I know that a lot of people like to lobby the fact that Wesley saves the ship is a bit of a done trope from those early seasons. But he really does. He's the first to notice that the Traveller is phasing, uh, as they say. Um, he's also the first to know that he is dying in some way, that he's suffering. Uh, because of the thought process that the Traveller has used to move them wherever they are. They then quickly move to uh, sickbay, which is completely dark. You've got Crusher, you've got Picard, you've got Kaczynski, Riker, and off in the distance you've got Wesley, barely perceptible. Everything else, all the lights, are completely shut off in sickbay. Now, this is uh, another criticism that's lobbied against uh, Discovery, is that it's too dark and uh, the lighting is, and that the lighting is too dim to see what's going on. It's quite hard to figure out what on earth is happening. Uh, and that is a legit criticism. You know, you can watch those episodes and sometimes you have to strain your eyes just to make out what's happening. Um, but this scene is also very, very dark. Uh, you can't really tell what sickbay looks like. Now, it's probably because they hadn't finished building the set. It was still a fairly new thing to be built and brought into the episode. So they were trying to hide some of the construction work. Obviously, that's a reason. It's not really a production uh, thing. But it's a precedent again. You've got these dark sets. And 
the, it works really well for this scene. You've got this mood lighting all the way around them. You've just focused on the character, the traveller lying there on the sickbay bed, uh, and you've got that, that small little light in the corner where Wesley is standing, looking on. Uh, this is the first instance that I remember uh, of Picard calling him the boy, and so uh, does Riker as well, rather than using Wesley's name. And then Wesley speaks up and says, my name's Wesley, and speaks up for himself. Um, certainly as a kid, I lacked any kind of confidence. Speaking up against authority and adults was just unthinkable. I couldn't do that because I had no confidence in myself. And then here's Wesley uh, being referred to in the third person and even being referred to just by as the boy um, standing up for himself. Uh, and, you know, to someone who isn't confident at that time, doing something like that, it kind of boosts you on and it makes you think and I, I I remember distinctly looking at Wesley through all the episodes not just this uh, this scene but looking at Wesley throughout all of Star Trek and and being motivated by him you know he, he studies hard he works hard he notices things he tries to be gracious to the adults around him and learn as best he can um, he was always that inspiration for how I think I should have acted when I was a child Picard uh, seems very callous in this scene. He asks and then almost verges on ordering Beverly to wake up the Traveller uh, so they can find out what exactly is going on. Um, Crusher objects but still goes ahead with it because she realises that if he doesn't wake up there may not be any chance for them to get home. The Traveller wakes up uh, and talks about how he travels the universe uh, out of curiosity. And weirdly, Picard comes back to him straight away and says that's not a good enough reason. Which is odd, considering that Starfleet's main objective is one of discovery, out of curiosity. <laughs> um, you know, They're not uh, a conquering power like the Klingons or the Romulans, so they're not exploring just for that. They are always looking to better themselves, so maybe he, he thinks that Starfleet has a different objective. It's not curiosity, it's about bettering themselves, but why explore? to do that you could better yourselves without having to explore you could randomly uh, move out to different star systems just to you know, control populations or whatever um, and just to improve yourselves that way why do the grandiose job of discovering if you're not curious so it's a very odd sentence and probably indicative of some of the poor and lazy writing that we see throughout of season one of star trek uh, the traveler says that he wants to merely see and experience our reality. So this is another bit of evidence to prove, for me, that this is outside space-time. Uh, this is before the universe. A weird parallel to the Megans. Uh, and I imagine this is probably just a, a trope that anyone trying to write a character who is so beyond us um, as talking to humans as though they need to have it put in terms they will understand. And he even says that exact phrase. So it's a weird parallel to the Megans from last episode, who also tried to uh, present their reality in terms they would understand. Now, that could just be lazy writing, uh, but I personally do believe that that's, uh, that's how it would be. Uh, if um, an ant were to have a conversation with a human being, trying to present our way of doing things to an ant who can walk up walls or um, you know can go with full 360 around a cable you know they have a completely different perspective to us so trying to limit their perspective to how we do things or change their way of doing things to how a human being sees the world um, you would have to put it in terms they could understand the traveler goes on to mention how thought is a potent force and Kaczynski actually says you're asking us to believe in magic a direct parallel to last uh, last week's episode um, magic seems to be the explanation so again it's that trope of the Arthur C. Clarke quote you know the the indistinguishable uh, technology Picard instantly accepts that that makes sense that there is uh, a uh, a force in the universe that isn't matter and energy that also affects reality um, now did he read the files of the old Enterprise going to Megas 2 uh, and uh, you know, uh, finding out that uh, belief and energy are uh, interchangeable, that matter and magic are the same thing, um, that would be a, a brilliant little line. Again, if Picard had said, we've met others like you, we know the Megans use magic, 
um, and so forth. That would have been a fantastic little twist just to just to keep the continuity. Obviously, by this point, the animated series is 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 still seen as it is today uh, as the lesser iteration, um, and so making a direct reference to that probably wouldn't be great. Uh, but how great would it have been just as a little Easter egg? Um, in the time that we live today with Marvel movies and whatnot, all those tiny little Easter eggs they like to put in, what a great thing. It would be like, oh, just like the Megans. Brilliant little line would have been fantastic. The Traveller also says something really interesting to um, all of them in the room and says that you humans should not be here at this, le at this point till much later in your development. Um, which is really odd because that either assumes that we're evolving to a point where we become something like the Traveller or they aren't ready to be in that part of the universe because we haven't accepted that thought reality. Um, both are very interesting possibilities. I, I tend to think it's the former, not the latter. But the latter would be a really interesting concept that until we can wrap our heads around a thought it cannot ever become reality for us. Um, this may be getting quite heady, a uh, very uh, philosophical-centric idea, um, but uh, it, it only plays into what I remember from my philosophy classes very long time ago, uh, the idea of um, Plato's forms, uh, casting shadows on the cave, understanding the full form of something, the thought of how something should be, to then understand what an object sh should be uh, like it. So uh, out in the metaphysical realm, in this weird thought universe, there is the perfect table or the perfect bowl. And in our universe, there is an approximation, the shadow on the cave, that is a table or a form of table or a form of a bowl. Um, it's that kind of idea. So if we were able to grasp the concept of the perfect table, the perfect bowl, that that's just another level up. Completely um, uh, hypothetical uh, way of looking at something. So I, I really do think that they were trying to play it as uh, humanity is evolving to a point rather than trying to get its head around certain concepts. But I would have loved if that was the latter, um, just to, to make it more heady, make it more Star Trek. Um, it, it's not just simply that we are progressing one to the next to the next to the next that we are um, evolving ideas and concepts not just physically. Riker then goes on to talk about why do you as a, a form of time traveller uh, not appear in any of our historical records? Why is there no example of someone like you coming to us? Uh, and the traveller kind of just shoots him down and says oh what wonderful arrogance. Um, uh, it, it kind of made me think of, of lines again that hasn't happened as far as this podcast is concerned but there is a line um, that uh, comes out of Spock in one of the movies in Voyage Home where he talks about the uh, uh, only human arrogance would intend that the message must be meant for man uh, so I really like that, that idea that um, these otherworldly very powerful beings like the Traveller uh, like to call us out on our arrogance sometimes. The Traveller also says that it wasn't until now that your species has become interesting. Um, and that, for me, encapsulates all of Star Trek. Um, that's why I love this show. It, it shows humanity being so much better than it is today. Uh, and it's the reason you know why it's quite easy to get depressed when you read, read the newspapers and watch the news on the TV. Um, of you know how we keep seem to we seem to be making the same mistakes over and over and over again that there is this light at the end of the tunnel that we become interesting as a species when we finally put our differences aside um, you know it, it sounds like lecturing it sounds like it sounds too hopeful to most people and uh, it's probably one of the reasons why people don't get into Star Trek and see it as, uh, as unrealistic uh, as, a, as a prediction of the future um, but that's why I think all of us love Star Trek, why the Star Trek fans love Star Trek, is that um, we only become interesting as a species when we get past all of our divisions. The Traveller also states that he um, is not just interested in our species, but specific individuals, namely Wesley. Now, I know that there is this creepy element to the Traveller, and we'll see that in future times, where you know, you're never quite sure what the relationship is there. In terms of just this scene, as we're reviewing just this this part of the episode, I almost see it as a mentor 
or teacher to a student or pupil. Um, there's a, a sense of brotherly love, um, I think, between them. Um, Wesley sticks up for him, defends the traveller. But um, that, I think that's that's more feelings from Wesley to the traveller. The traveller sees it much more as he could be a guiding force uh, and a teacher uh, to Wesley. But he couldn't be around Wesley because that would somehow pollute his progression. Uh, he also talks about Beverly Crusher as the mother. Uh, so I don't know whether that was him trying to, you know, um, be a little bit clever and um, play around with how they were calling Wesley the boy, and you know he's he's playing it back right at them, um, uh, or whether uh, it, because he just doesn't know her name, he's just simply calling her the mother. The traveller uh, says that he and a few like him are the reason that I travel. Um, I like the idea that there are advanced beings out in the world who are recognising the. The exceptional people uh, in the world. Uh, I mean, don't we all want that in our lives? That you know, um, we have inner talents, potential, something that could push us somewhere else uh, in in life, and that we just need that one person to recognise that talent, who has the access, who, have, who perhaps has the uh, the ability to to push us that a little bit further. Um, certainly, for me. That was uh, one of my teachers uh, when I was a, a young boy. I'll name him, shame him. It was Roger Dixon, my uh, teacher from primary school. He was the one who really encouraged my uh, academic side. He, he really pushed uh, me to get into history uh, and music, um, or more the history of music, not necessarily playing music, because if you heard me play music, uh, I, I don't think you'd want to listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> but he was the one who really pushed me academically and, and saw the potential for me to take that a bit further. He even mentioned Mozart. I know it's an old trope again, uh, the idea that Mozart is this, this massive genius um, and that he was so much uh, bigger than his contemporaries, which is true. Uh, he had this innate talent, but not, in reality, a complete fluke. Uh, when you look at Mozart's history, when you look at how he was raised, the fact that he was in this travelling musical family, it's hardly surprising that eventually the Mozart line would have produced someone of his talent, his calibre. You've got all these musicians in one place. He grows up around that expertise. He would then become so much more exceptional. It would almost become second nature to him to write fantastic music. So whilst Mozart is exceptional, I know it is a trope that is brought up in quite a few TV shows, again, not just science fiction, that Mozart is this amazing genius. Really, when you look at the reality of Mozart, he is a genius because of the the world that he grows up in. But you could say the same about Wesley. Wesley will only become amazing because of the world he lives in, because he needs that encouragement. Speaking of encouragement, that's exactly what the traveller asks Picard to do. Um, he says, "Don't let the you know the mother know. Um, don't let Wesley know that I am asking you to look after Wesley, guide him, push him uh, into these spheres of knowledge." And key, key phrase there, spheres of knowledge, again, looking back at last week, um, making sure that he isn't just filtered into one way of thinking, that he needs to be able to see everything. Uh, he needs to become that generalist. Very odd. Picard leaves the sick bay um, uh, as the traveller is heading down to engineering to, to try and get them back home. We get another little weird side scene where it's in a random corridor. There is a crewman caught out by fire that he has imagined in his mind, uh, which is trapping him there. It becomes um, very evident that anything anyone thinks will uh, harm them in some way, so they need to focus them. Um, the traveller says that he is uh, like a lens for thought and that he can focus that energy and that will get them home. Complete twaddle, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned in scientific terms, but a fun story element. He tells the crew member to put the fire out in his mind and the crew member has this weird tilt of the head where he, he doesn't quite believe it and, and doesn't know what exactly the, the, the captain is talking about, even though he's presented with definite evidence right in front of his face that he was thinking, he was obviously thinking about fire. The fire happened, so stop thinking about fire. There won't be any fire. Uh, it just seems odd that the crew member doesn't believe the captain who is giving in this perfectly rational explanation. Captain gets back to the bridge, starts putting out uh, a tannoy uh, across the entire ship, uh, and he starts telling people 
don't have random thoughts. Now, I, uh, I'm fully aware that in psychology there is this aspect that if you don't tell someone to do something, they'll actually do it. That the human brain will only focus on the last part of the message. Um, so by not saying that, everyone's going to start having random thoughts. And I would have loved a little scene just there where people are just having the most random thoughts as they try and then battle through it. I know they probably were playing for time and that wouldn't have been possible and the budget wouldn't be there. But I think it would have just been more more fun just to have those little tiny asides. You know, uh, a kid who re suddenly realises he could think of everything. So he has all the cake and chocolate and uh, <laughs> everything in his room and quarters. Uh, and you've got the... Um, you know, uh, the parent coming along, seeing the kid, and has this massive uh, vacuum cleaner or something that sucks it all back up again, uh, just to have those weird little uh, family dynamics going on, uh, and seeing the crew members. Speaking of seeing the crew members, we get a scant. We not only get a scant, we get a man in a scant. Now, uh, for anyone listening who isn't a Star Trek fan uh, yet, as I know you will be, scants were an attempt in TNG to level the playing field in terms of uniforms. Uh, in the 60s, we had mini skirts uh, and uh, all the problems that come with that in terms of uh, uh, stereotyping women and playing women as objects. So in the TNG era, uh, as Roddenberry uh, tried to make, um, men would wear mini skirts too. And they made this uniform called the scant, which became very popular uh, in amongst the fans, um, more as a joke than anything else. Um, but we get a scant and we get one of the crew members just listening out to Picard as he's telling them to to centre their thoughts. Troy, um, Deanna Troy is used in possibly the most obvious way that she could be used by uh, giving a kind of serene look on her face and saying how wonderfully joyful the whole ship is. Um, you know, it, it kind of states the obvious, but it's nice to know that it's happening and that there is this character who speaks on behalf of the crew. Tasha also says a very obvious statement, but a very true statement, that it just takes one crew member being fearful to perhaps throw a spanner in the works, um, which is a genuine concern. Like, if you've got the entire crew powering the ship using this thought energy, this thought technology, uh, one of them just slipping up could possibly throw the entire ship into another reality altogether. Um, so I, I thought that was a, a genuinely good use of uh, Tasha Yar as a security chief trying to uh, give Picard the most obvious security risk that she can think of. Again, Picard then tries to get the crew to focus on their duty if they can't focus their thoughts on just the traveller himself. And he's specifically telling them to focus good thoughts, good vibes towards the, the traveller. But then he instantly calls for battle stations. Now, if everyone's at battle stations, isn't everyone going to start thinking of battles? This is the big problem that I have with this this part of the scene uh, and, and generally in how they're going to get back. Tasha has just said there's a genuine part of fear. He has mentioned that thoughts are dangerous and he's calling people to go to battle stations. Just having that scene of perhaps a Klingon battle cruiser or a Romulan uh, cruiser as well, or, or just some random um, uh, alien ship that doesn't even exist uh, in the actual universe of Star Trek, but it's the the manifestation of fear itself would be fantastic. It would have injected perhaps a bit of action into their escape from this thought universe, that there's this manifestation of fear, similar to the id monster from the old um, uh, Forbidden Planet uh, movie. If you've seen it, um, uh, that's great. If you haven't seen it, do give it a look. It's a really old uh, George Powell movie. Um, it's it's got uh, Leslie Nielsen as the captain. Uh, it's it's the archetype of, of Star Trek. You know, you could easily see how Star Trek comes from Forbidden Planet. You've got that id monster who is the the projection of everybody's fears, who is almost in, indestructible because of fear itself. There's a moment where uh, Picard then orders Geordi to set a course uh, and tells him to go retroactively. Uh, it's the old Star Trek trope. If you went somewhere to get uh, to this odd part of the corner of the universe, the only way to get out is to turn around and go backwards. Um, that doesn't always work, and I doubt that that's actually even possible. Um, as, uh, again, my limited understanding of science works, as soon as you move an object into a state of being, it's very hard to get back to its original state. Um, there is a, a decay of energy, there is uh, uh, 
um, there is aspects of heat death um, it, it, to sort of go backwards in order to undo what you've just done very odd but we're in a thought universe so literally anything could happen and I think scientific uh, realism has already been thrown out the window so we, I suppose we can forgive them for that Troy then states the abundance of well-being as she likes to call it on board the, sh the ship again very odd considering that we've had uh, Tashiar's warning of fear we've had um, thought as a powerful dangerous thing and Picard calling battle stations and the whole crew is somehow thinking that it's all a good thing it's strange it's very odd uh, and I don't know if it classes as a plot hole but it does seem suspect in the motivations of the characters at first they're starting to move forward they've got to warp 1.5 but nothing's happening and Picard is starting to shake his head and, and even say that it's not it's not working as he expected but the traveler hasn't started phasing uh, it's a pretty poor special effect it's just literally the character the actor standing still uh, and then lines of um, him not being in the shot are uh, overlaid on top of him being there and sitting in, in engineering um, you know it's not the most amazing special effect but it does its duty uh, and as I did with the animated series and as I'm going to do with the special effects in the original series I'm not going to hold that against it poor special effects um, are, are easily trumped by good storytelling um, and it just makes sense that they haven't moved out the thought universe because the traveller hasn't done his bit yet he's just waiting for all of that thought energy that thought technology to get into place before he's allowed to do it it just adds that little extra tension to the scene you start to get these this weird chime music as uh, as the traveler is phasing and uh, a nice sweet little observation <laughs> as with the last episode uh, my baby son zachary was sitting with me as we were watching this the traveler sort of places his hands on the consoles uh, closes his eyes and looks upward uh, in order to concentrate on phasing, it it seems to be the the you know, the, the universal language of actors that uh, if you're doing something magical, close your eyes uh, and place your hands out or on something. Uh, that's the only way that it works. It's a quick shorthand. But uh, my baby son Zachary was was watching that, uh, and then he did the exact same thing. He was uh, sitting cross-legged next to me on the sofa, placed his hands on his knees, and closed his eyes and just smiled at me. Um, so. I, I take that as tacit approval that a non-Star Trek fan is enjoying this episode if he wants to imitate the Traveller. Yeah, come at me again. Yeah, maybe it's not scientific, maybe it's not the most accurate way of uh, uh, of measuring whether someone's going to like the episode, but if a baby wants to imitate the character and what he's doing on the screen, so be it. And that's where we end. The timestamp is 41 minutes and 46 seconds when the Enterprise D re-enters normal time, normal space time. And that's it. So here we are at the ratings. Um, as I said before, last episode, uh, this is still an evolving concept. I want to steer clear of uh, rating things one to five, one to 10, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, keep it nice and loose because everyone's got their own hang-ups and what they think about the episode, uh, whether they like it or not. Now, I already sort of tipped my hand and showed that I do love this episode. This is one of my favorites from season one. Um, so I do enjoy it, but Firstly, does it affect canon? And definitely yes for this one. Without the Traveller, we don't get the eventual arc of what Wesley is. We don't uh, have the concept of uh, the propulsion um, being improved on Federation vessels. So there, it, it instantly shows that um, Starfleet isn't stagnating. They are trying to adapt their technology, improve, become better... Um, and it's this—it's that wonderful thing. It's the thing I love about Star Trek is when they give us the the kind of little glimpses into what might be happening elsewhere in the Federation. That there's always these little rooms for improvement. This little uh, project going on here or project going on there. Um, that they are all trying to actively improve themselves. It's not just our favourite ship that is the main ship of the TV show. That it's happening everywhere. Um, so as far as its impact on the universe, on the canon, uh, if we're going to use that word. Um, then yes, definitely yes, it impacts. It is an important episode for them. Rewriting. So casting a creative eye onto it, um, how would I rewrite the episode? Honestly, it's difficult to say. I've already offered little scenes, little glimpses, little lines that I would have included just to give 
maybe just a bit of fan service. Uh, that would have been fun. But I actually really enjoy the progression of this episode. All the events prior to the timestamp that I gave you uh, and all the events after can't be included in this. So how would I rewrite this particular section? You'd have the Enterprise moving into this whatever it is. I would have actually had the Traveller um, perhaps not be exhausted, but um, be brought up to the bridge um, and have him perhaps demonstrate to them that thought uh, was going on in such a way. Um, have the random crew members be on the bridge. Have the crew witness what's going on uh, with everybody. Um, but as it was, I enjoyed Picard going through the decks and, and showing people doing all these random things. And in some cases, we didn't even see Picard find out what people were getting up to, like like the man with the violin. It was just a fun aside. So perhaps, you know, there is no way to, to rewrite that aspect. It, it was fun as it was, left unchecked. There is a very highfalutin, very conceptual way that some people are talking in this episode. There are ways that characters act which seem out of step with what I remember. But again, this is all stuff that's happening outside of this time. Uh, so I can't really include that as a criticism uh, of these slots. So in terms of rewrites, I don't think I could add or change anything that would make it work. I think the progression of a problem in engineering to the traveller in the sick bay, the setup of an arc, a story arc for development for, for Wesley, all the way to uh, the Enterprise then solves the problem. It's almost a three-act play. You've got um, three different elements, three different story strands, uh, and even a, a mild resolve uh, at the end. You've got the reset button at the end. So just this segment worked almost like its own little episode. Lastly, would I recommend the episode? Now, to Star Trek fans, I know that season one is a problem. But, as I've said before, I really like this one. And I think it is one of the better episodes of season one. So, in terms of this scene, using the timestamps, yes, I would recommend people watch this. However, if I was talking about the whole episode, all in one go, and because there is very little tension, and as a piece of entertainment, giving it to a non-Star Trek fan, someone who is invested in the characters, someone who has no idea what's going on, who may not have um, you know, the ear or the, the, the taste for weird conceptual stories about thought and universe and time, um, I don't think this stands up as the best of Star Trek to offer to non-Star Trek fans. So yes to Star Trek fans, because I think this is one of our better episodes, but to a non-Star Trek fan, perhaps trying to get into the show for the first time, don't think I could recommend this part of the episode. And that's it. So if you disagree with me, please, by all means, send feedback. If you don't think that this should have been an episode in season zero in our out of existence episodes, and it perhaps should sit somewhere else, perhaps even time adjacent, please let me know. Uh, offer, you know, um, any evidence from things that are said. Perhaps uh, Mama Picard saying beginning and end of the universe meant that it should have been somewhere at either end uh, of our journey here. If you have fan art, like I say, you know, I'd love to hear from you. You know, send it in. Perhaps it'll be a picture of uh, uh, the traveller uh, thinking things into existence. Perhaps it's just that guy with his violin just sitting there having a good time, having his lunch. Um, you know, whatever it is, I would love to see it. I, I really hope that this podcast becomes um, my focus lens, just like The Traveller, uh, for all of your artwork and your creativity. I would love to see that. Um, if you are a musician and you want to make some uh, music, perhaps music that could uh, play as an underlying thing during uh, the way I'm talking to you so that it's not just uh, me talking to you, <laughs> probably sending you to sleep by now. If there's anything you want to do creatively, if you want to record anything, um, uh, any kind of feedback on, a, on an MP3 file, send it to me. I can then uh, splice it in and we'll do a whole feedback section at the beginning just before the review uh, in the episode. Um, again, I would love to hear from you. Uh, there is now a uh, Twitter account uh, for the Temporal Trek podcast. Uh, I'll be updating that and possibly even a website that will list all of the rewatch schedule uh, as well. Um, but uh, more details on that coming up soon. It occurred to me that uh, in the last episode I said what the next episode would be, but I didn't give you a timestamp from where to start so that you could perhaps rewatch the episode and the parts going on. Uh, I was going to offer that to you um, in this episode, but the next episode 
is going to be quite difficult as it's going to be lots of chops and changes between out of time and in time. Uh, our next episode is actually The Emissary. Now, it may seem odd to you, thinking through uh, all of TNG, that there should be other times when we are out of time. Specifically, thinking about episodes like Tapestry, where we see Picard in death. Uh, there's also uh, All Good Things, where you've got uh, all the enterprises against that that weird time bubble um, that is going on. The reason I haven't included those as outside time, here we go. <laughs> uh, you've got Tapestry. I believe all of that is happening within the second of Picard's almost death. That Picard is being toyed with by Q in some respect, but I see that as time adjacent. Equally, all of the aspects of uh, the three enterprises converging in that time bubble are all happening in that second, in the moment where they're trying to close the, the time, the anti-time fissure, uh, the anomaly. Um, so that's all happening in that second. It does mean that all good things will be played at a lot of different times, um, but it won't be here in this season. So really, the first time that we get back to being outside of time and existence, for me, is with the prophets in the wormhole, in The Emissary, the first episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I really like that iteration. I grew up on TNG. I love TNG. TNG it will always be my first but I recognise that DS9 is something else, and it, I think it's actually probably the best iteration of what Star Trek has to offer, not just for fans, but also for other fans. So maybe that'll play into my recommendations at the end of the review as well. But I will give you a timestamp to start the episode with. On Netflix, The Emissary is a two-parter, but it's played as one single episode. So at timestamp, 54 minutes and one second, that is where the journey will begin. It will mean constantly having to flip out back to normal time and then flip back into non-time. And I will take all of those instances as one review, as one solid patch of time where Cisco is inside the wormhole talking to the wormhole aliens, the prophets. Um, uh, but that's where we're going to go next. The Emissary from Deep Space Nine. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Temporal Trek. If you would like to contribute anything to the show, fan art, music, clips, ideas for segments, then please feel free to contact me on Twitter at Hitch underscore Daniel or on Instagram Daniel underscore Hitch underscore writer. This show is always going to be free. There's no Patreon at all. But if you would like to financially contribute to the show, then I am a published author on Amazon and I'll catch you in the next time stream.